listen now to the Word of God. We were also once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being saved, justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope, the guarantee of eternal life. Father, we just sang, my chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. Thank You for Your incredible grace that in the midst of our foolishness and our waywardness, You reached us and gave us the good news of a Savior who died, who was raised, that through simple faith in Him, we might be forgiven and come into a personal relationship with You. Thank You that that is the starting place to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but You've commanded us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, and so we are here today in obedience to Your Word to humble ourselves on this Lord's Day, to gather with Your people as You instruct, And I've come as an under-shepherd to feed your people, and I need your help to accomplish that. So I thank you that in weakness there's strength. Thank you that you meet us and that you choose to even use any of us. God, please come and fill me and empower me and speak to every person listening, wherever they may be. May the Spirit, the one whom you promised to be our teacher, may he have ultimate aim today. And may we not just hear this book, but may we be those who have been born again to be willing to obey it. And we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Would you take your Bibles, please, this morning and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. As you can see, the sermon topic this morning is appearance without reality, or what we might call ho-hum Christianity, the kind of Christianity that just yawns in the face of God Almighty, the kind of Christianity where there's no fire, no zeal, no passion, and no enthusiasm for the things of God, for the things that really matter in this life. And unfortunately, that has largely become a picture of American Christianity, a half-hearted church with very little to no influence in the world in which we live. Now, if you're here for the first time, we've been working our way verse by verse through the Revelation, and today we turn the corner into a new chapter, Revelation 3. But we've noted that the term revelation is a Greek word, apocalypsis, that means to unveil or to uncover. And so we get the word apocalypse. In some of your Bibles, the title, it doesn't say the revelation of Jesus Christ, but it says the apocalypse. The apocalypse is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, and that's a good title as well. And it's the last book of the Bible, and among other things, it gives us a picture of the final consummation of all things, but it also speaks to where the church is today as he addresses these seven churches. Now, what I find interesting is that a book that literally means revealed or open 
is a book that is concealed for many, and they find it very difficult to understand. And yet God promises that if we will read it and hear it and heed it, that He will bless us for it. Even in that promise, there's a presupposition that you can understand what you are reading so that you can heed it. Now, I must say parenthetically that the book, as the opening verses indicate, were written to God's bondservants. It's written to believers. And if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord, you're going to have an incredible amount of difficulty even beginning to embrace the book of Revelation because without the Spirit of God living in you as your teacher, He can't help you. But with that said, even as saved people, we must be willing, as Proverbs says, to cry for discernment, to lift our voice for understanding, to search for the meaning of the truth like hidden treasure. Now, if this is your first time here and you weren't here for some of the prior messages, I would suggest you download on your phone the Search the Scriptures app at searchthescriptures.org and listen to some of the preliminary messages because they are critical to your understanding, especially the last section of the book when we come to chapter 4. It sounds like you found it, Revelation 3. We want to begin reading now in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There on your note-taking outline in your bulletin, you can see there are three truths concerning the church of Sardis that I want to highlight this morning in your thinking. We begin with Sardis's reputation that is exposed. There's a reputation that they have that is not an accurate rep- reputation, so Jesus exposes their real reputation. Notice again how the letter opens to the angel. We've seen the term is used both of literal angels and other messengers, human messengers, and so we've studied in great detail that this is to the pastor, what we, today we call the senior pastor, to the angel of the church in Sardis Rite. Now here's a map, if you remember, of the seven churches. And as you can see, Jesus starts here in the lower left-hand corner with Ephesus in this horseshoe-type state shape. He goes all the way around up to the top of the horseshoe down to Laodicea. We studied first the church at Ephesus. I called it the formal church. Because while they were straight as an arrow doctrinally, they had left, not lost, but left their first love. From Ephesus, we went up the coast a little bit, 35 miles uh, here in the horseshoe, and we came to Smyrna, what I call the fearful church. Jesus commands them, do not be fearful. And of course, this is only one of two churches of which Jesus gives no rebuke, but only commends them 
only praises them because they were willing to lay their lives down for Christ and for the gospel. From there, we traveled another 50 miles north of Smyrna. And if you were here last time, we came to the church at Pergamum. And I call this the faltering church. Uh, because they were tolerating, not teaching, but tolerating the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we discussed what that meant and its implications. Then you notice there uh, the fourth church, Thyatira. Do you remember that message? What was it entitled? Jesus or Jezebel there in Thyatira. And we call this a false church. There were some believers in it. But there were a lot of false believers in it. They professed to know God, Titus will say, but by their deeds, they deny him. Today, we go another 30 miles southeast of Thyatira, and we come to Sardis, the church at Sardis. And this was a church that was a fruitless church. They had kind of a ho-hum apathy towards God. That was not how people perceived them, but they had appearance without reality. Now, let me just say something about the city of Sardis, because we've seen with each of these churches, understanding what the city was like is instrumental to understanding the words that Jesus gave, because sometimes our surroundings can impact and influence what we are really like. Remember, these seven churches are in modern-day Turkey. It's referred to as Asia, not the continent of Asia as we think of it today, but Asia in the first century was a province, today encompassing Turkey, a province within the Roman Empire. Sometimes today we call it Asia Minor. Here's a picture of some of the ancient ruins there in Sardis. Um, it's within a little place called Lydia, and it's the capital of Lydia. It's a very important city in the first century. There were five roads that intersected in this city, which made it propitious for business. It was a city known in this century as a very prosperous place, a place of luxury, but also a place of license and loose living. Um, It was also a military center. If you've ever been to Sardis, it sits way up on top of a hill. On three sides, there are steep cliffs, and there's only one side that they really needed to protect. It's 1,500 feet up on t- above the ground. And so they thought it was impregnable, that no one could ever defeat it, that they were totally protected. And that's one of the reasons they prospered for so long. However, six centuries before the Lord Jesus came, some soldiers scaled the walls. They got up through some cracks in the wall, and they made their way to the top. Here's a picture of the uh, fortress that is still there. You can see some of the ancient Roman wall at the top. And again, it sits way up on top of a hill. And so, as it turns out, on six different occasions before Jesus came, different armies, the Persians and the Greeks and so forth, came in and conquered the city. And so, there is an appearance of security without really the reality of security. And what was true of the city physically became true of the people in this church spiritually. And so these armies came as a thief in the night. It became a proverbial statement for this particular city. Now, most of us know it, and we will see Jesus use that statement 
in this context, not in reference to those who are lost, but to those who are saved as a warning that he may come in discipline and in judgment to deal with his people. He also, of course, uses it in the Olivet Discourse, this popular first century proverbial statement to describe his second coming, that to an unbelieving world, he will come like a thief. Paul will say of the church that we are not in darkness, that the day, the day of Christ's return, should overtake us like a thief. But Jesus is going to use it a little bit differently here. Now, with that said, uh, this was a very prosperous city. And uh, there was a king who initially conquered the city. His name was King Croesus. Some of you know the expression, rich is Croesus, meaning you're extremely wealthy. Uh, There was another king that's associated with this city, King Midas, at least in Greek mythology. People debate whether or not he was an actual real king, but supposedly Midas, of course, uh, sought the Greek god and he got his wish that whatever he would touch would turn to gold. You read it as a child, remember? And he soon regretted his wish because every time he touched the food, the food turned to gold and he couldn't eat. So the legend goes that he went and he bathed in the river of Pactolus right here in the city of Sardis. And that's why, because for that reason, they had all these gold reserves. This is one of the first cities in the world to mint silver and gold coins. And of course, King Croesus comes in, a very wealthy king. He is known for building one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the great temple of Artemis, the great temple of Diana, as it's also called, there in the city of Ephesus. And he built a smaller version of it here in this particular city. And so ancient records also show that Sardis was not only known for their worship of this god and this this so-called god and this great temple that they built, but they were also known primarily business-wise for the manufacture of garments. And Jesus is going to key off of this theme of garments before we are done. So um, that's important. It's important that we understand this, what they were like, and the fact that they were so wealthy and prosperous, because sometimes wealth becomes a stumbling block to the purposes of God. Moses warned it. He said to the children of Israel, listen, when you go into the land that God promised you, and you enjoy cisterns that you didn't dig, and you live in houses that you didn't build, and you eat the fruit of vineyards that you did not plant, don't forget the Lord your God. Jesus gives similar admonitions in the New Testament. And so it's within this atmosphere that this church begins to fail. Let's read a little bit further here into verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, which we saw was defined within the text itself, the seven pastors who are in his hands. So Jesus has his pastors in his hands. That's comforting to me as a pastor. Now, if you remember, in the greeting found in the opening verses of the book of Revelation, we read this in Revelation 1.4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you in peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits, there it is again, what we just read in three one that we read in one four, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now we've seen in the study of these churches so far that every single church 
is given a character trait that describes um, the person of the Lord Jesus in the opening verses of the Revelation. And he chooses a particular character trait from that uh, opening dialogue, and he applies it to a church either to commend them or to rebuke them. And so we saw that there's a parallel, and there's only one church that he doesn't do that with, and we're coming to that church very, very soon. Now, if you will notice here in Revelation 1-4, like in Revelation 3-1, the word spirit is capitalized. If you were using the Young's literal translation or the King James or the New King James or the New American Standard, the word spirit is capitalized. Some of the other English translations use a lowercase letter and they leave it for you to interpret. Well, we interpreted it very carefully and we saw that they are correct in capitalizing it that this is indeed a reference to God the Holy Spirit, here described as the seven spirits, that he's not speaking to seven pastors or, for that matter, even seven angels, but in that greeting, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son are addressing the church very, very specifically. And the idea of the seven spirits of God was an Old Testament idiom, And we looked at some different passages. For instance, here's a chart that is built off of Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, where the prophet Isaiah describes the seven attributes and ministries of God the Holy Spirit. He's called there the Spirit of the Lord, who will rest on him, on the Messiah, the Spirit of wisdom. He's called the Spirit of understanding. He's called the Spirit of counsel. He's called the Spirit of strength, the Spirit of knowledge, and he's also called the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. Likewise, we studied the prophet Zechariah, where a very similar description is used to help us to understand this phrase. Remember, one of the reasons the revelation is locked out to so many people is because in its 404 verses... There are over 300 allusions to the Old Testament. And there's not a single verse that says, Isaiah said or Zechariah said. It's just assumed that in some respect, you are willing to study it and mine it out and figure it out. Some would say there's 600 or 700 or 800. Well, they're double counting and that's okay because there are parallel texts. But 300 of the 404 verses, that's about 75% are intertwined out of the Old Testament. So remember that occasion, Zechariah the prophet has a vision, and the angel of God asks him a question. Let me read it to you. He said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on the top of it, and the seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps, which are on top of it, also two olive trees by it. One on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking to me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Now listen to the angel's response. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord, Yahweh, to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but my spirit says the Lord of hosts. And so he reminds him 
that these quantities of seven are picturing the Spirit of God Himself, that the seven lamps, the seven spouts, and the two olive trees that continually and habitually feed these lamps are a reminder that God the Holy Spirit is willing and wanting to enable His people. And of course, this is the promise of the new covenant that I'll put my spirit within you, that you'll be able to walk in my ways. And so Jesus selectively takes out of the introduction that's used to describe him here, the seven spirits of God, and he uses it to remind, as we're going to see, this church of a very important point, that while they had the spirit, they were not relying on the spirit. And so again in 3.1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And so John is using this Old Testament imagery to describe the Spirit of God. And we don't want to miss that this morning. We're not saying that there are seven Holy Spirits. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There is one Spirit. But God uses this number for a reason. And numbers are very important in the Bible. God is the God of numbers. Whether it's in chemistry or physics or biology or zoology or whatever discipline you are looking at, numbers are of great significance and they are great of great significance to God because God is the inventor of numbers and He is the one as a God of precision who uses numbers. And as we've seen already, numbers in the Bible can be used of a literal count, or it can be used symbolically. For instance, take the number one. Throughout the Bible, the number one is the number of unity because God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. The number two throughout the Scripture is the number of witness. And so Jesus sent His disciples out two by two. There is a reason for that. We're admonished in the Scripture that we are not to take an accusation against a brother without at least two witnesses to confirm it. I was in a board meeting recently for a Christian organization for whom I serve, and someone said, I second the motion. There is an affirmation uh, with the number two. The number three is the divine number of God. And so in Revelation 1.8, we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord. Who is? That's one. Who was? That's two. And who is to come? That is three. And so virtually every Sunday, we were supposed to do one today, but person got sick. Um, we baptize in the name, not the names, for God is one, but in the name of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So three is the, the divine number of God. We also, we will see throughout the Revelation that six is another important number because it is the number of man. It was on the sixth day, not by accident, that God created man to walk on this earth. When we come to Revelation 13 and verse 18, we will read this. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. And we will see that the beast will identify himself with three sixes, pretending to be God. In fact, he'll have an unholy trinity that will operate, Satan functioning like the Father, Um, We will see the Son functioning like the Antichrist and the false prophet functioning like the Holy Spirit. 
But this number six is used three times because the beast will claim to be what Jesus is, the God-man. He will claim to be a human who is absolutely divine and therefore needs to be worshipped. But the number seven referenced here in our text this morning is the number of perfection in Scripture. And so the fact that the Holy Spirit is described as the seven spirits of God is underscoring his omniscience, his omnipresence, his, um, his uh, power over all things, that he is indeed complete and perfect, and he is able as a complete member of the Trinity to meet the needs of the church. And that's something we're going to see this morning that this church needs to hear. Now, that's kind of by way of introduction. Now, with that said, Jesus exposes the reputation of this church on two levels. I want you to notice first, their reputation was that of being alive. We're going to see that this is a sleeping church. And Jesus is going to give this church a wake-up call. With the exception of a few people in this church, this church is basically flatlined. They had a reputation of being alive. Notice, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive. I know your deeds. We've seen that already, haven't we? Jesus is walking amongst his churches. He is present here today, and if he were to walk up and down these aisles, what kind of deeds would he have observed that we've done this week or even this morning? Were they for his honor and glory, or, for, or they are to our shame or our own self-centeredness? I know your deeds. He knows his church. I know your deeds, that you have a name, onima. It's a Greek word that means a label. You have a name, you have a label that you are alive, but appearances can be deceiving. You can have appearance without reality. When I was in college, I went with my dad to uh, London and uh, we spent a little bit of time there and he had a a meeting uh, in ophthalmology and on one Sunday when he was in a meeting, I went to the Westminster Abbey. I wanted to see the place. And what reminded me of it is this week, I, I found on my bookshelf a, a little souvenir I had bought from the church showing all the pictures and the outline and who's buried there and the artwork and so forth. And, and it was the church bulletin of that Sunday morning, August 22nd, 1976. And I wanted to see the church. Most of you know it. It's the place where Princess Diana was married. It's the place where kings and queens are installed. And when I arrived, I thought I had maybe missed the service because it was empty. Now, understand, this was once a great church. Men like John Knox, men like Richard Baxter preached in it to thousands of people on Sunday mornings. And I went in. I thought, maybe I got the time wrong. Maybe I'm late. The church just was virtually empty, but I could hear something way down in the front. So I kept walking and walking. I got down to the front and then walked to the right and went down a little bit further. And there were these uh, priests of sorts that were dressed up in their little suits and all these altar boys. And, um, and then there was congregants, all 12 of us. I mean, there was more people in the support group, the little choir boys and all the priests than there were actual congregants. 
And it was really sad. I mean, it was literally a dead church. And by the way, that is a typical Sunday in that place. How sad it is, how depraved Europe has become in ignoring the living God. Now, if you went to Sardis on a Sunday morning, it would be a little bit different. It would be filled. And you would think it was alive. You'd think this was a booming church. I mean, this church had a big name. This church had a good name. To put it in 21st century terms, if you went to the city of Sardis and you said, hey, I'm looking for a good church. Oh, I know the first church, first Sardis. That's where you want to go. It's a great church. They have a marvelous ministry there. They're a booming church. That's where you want to attend. Uh, They were enjoying the ordinances. They were hearing the Word of God taught. They were worshiping on the Lord's Day. They were going through all the motions. They had a name that they were alive. But they weren't. So their reputation was that they were alive. But secondly, their reality was that of being dead. The reality is they were not alive, Jesus taught. They were dead. Listen to what the chief shepherd says. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. There was no vitality. They were not walking with him. They were content with mediocrity. Listen, it doesn't matter what the church growth expert says about your church. He may say, oh, you're doing everything right. Look at your crowds. It's alive. Doesn't matter what we think about the church. What matters is what the chief shepherd thinks about the church. They thought they were alive, but Jesus said they were dead. He didn't say they were ill. He didn't say they were in need of a remedy. He said they were dead. Now, they thought they were alive, but the fact is is that they were literally on the brink of death. And it's really sad to think that everyone thought it was great when Jesus thought otherwise. This organism that was once alive had just become an organization. They were going through all the little hoops that they jumped through every Sunday morning, but there was no real vitality. Now, what are the signs of death? Well, uh, biblically, of course, when the spirit departs the body, you're dead. And once you're dead, you don't come back to life. It's not when your heart stops. I read of a man this week The article kind of fascinated me. He was in Panera Bread earlier of last week and a regular customer there and he he went down on the floor and the waitress about screamed and she called someone and before you know it, in a matter of minutes, they had people there working on him and they worked on him for over 20 minutes. Most paramedics would have declared him dead, but for whatever reason, they just kept working on this guy. They said they did over 1,300 heart compressions. He was sore when he finally woke up because they'd beat his chest so hard. Poor guy. But listen, uh, a good physician, if he sees a spark of life, will do everything he can to bring that life back. And Jesus is the great physician, and he loves his churches. And so in this church, they had basically flatlined, but as we will see, not totally, There's still a spark of life there. Now, let me ask you a question. 
If God the Holy Spirit left your life today, now I know if you're born again, that cannot happen because the Bible teaches we're sealed with the Spirit for the day of redemption. But if somehow God the Holy Spirit could vacate your life, would His absence change anything? What if God the Holy Spirit didn't work in this church and He left this church? Would it make a difference? Now, I'm not talking about some feeling that you should be looking for. There's a a carnal emotionalism that the Bible speaks of. I'm not talking about some kind of fanaticism this morning. But God, the Holy Spirit, wants to be functioning in your life. He wants to be real to you. And when a church loses the presence of the Spirit and His touch, then that, that, that movement of God just becomes a monument. A bunch of people getting together. You know, we were away on vacation many years ago, and when we're away, we go to church. I hope you do. I hope you don't say, well, I'm on vacation. And I know pastors, they go on vacation, and they say, well, I'm, I'm not preaching today, so I'm just going to sleep in. Listen, it's the Lord's Day wherever you are, and you should gather with God's people. And so we kind of scoped it out, and I thought, well, this is definitely a gospel-preaching church, and so we went to it. But it was obvious after we were in the service for about five minutes, it was a dead church. You know, you can tell a lot about a church just by the way they sing, because singing is an expression of the Spirit's fullness, and whether or not a Christian is filled with the Spirit is seen among other things when they sing, and and when that's true corporately, where there's a lot of believers who don't really sing with fervor and passion and zeal, then you've got a church that's dead. I mean, it was dead, and the, the, the preaching was horrible. I mean, I endured it. I... I mean, by the time the service was over, I was just worn out. And so we went to a restaurant, and I mean, the restaurant was alive. They had all kind of music going and people going to tables and singing. And I'm telling you, if that restaurant had given an invitation, I would have joined. I mean, it it was more alive than the church I had just come out of. Well, Sardis was kind of a dead church. The people there remind me of Samson. Samson, through his disobedience, lost the power of the Spirit of God in his life. He was as weak as water, but he didn't know it until that occasion came upon him. When I was uh, first married, I was at my in-law's house, and as I was there, uh, a snake was in the front foyer, and my mother-in-law came unglued. Now, I've got the best relationship in the world with my mother-in-law. I love her to death. If you could, I couldn't ask for a better mother-in-law in the world. But this woman is absolutely frantic of snakes. And there was a snake there, and she started screaming, and she grabbed a hoe, and she handed it to me. So, I mean, I'm from the north, and we don't have snakes up north like we have them here in the south. I mean, occasionally you'll see one. And for us, any good snake is a dead snake. And I didn't know at this point in my life, I was 23 years old, whether it was a gardener snake or a rattlesnake. But to me, it needed to be dead. And so I started swinging with that hoe and I was aiming all over and I swung the hoe so many times I broke the hoe in half. And my father-in-law came up hearing all the commotion. He just picked up the broken hoe and with one swipe, he took that head off. But the snake kept moving. It appeared to have life, but it was really dead. Now, it didn't do that for long. But there's a lot of churches like that. 
They're like the northern star, you know, I'm told the the northern star is 323 million light years away, that the light we see at night took 323 million light years to get here. That's how vast the universe our great God has made and created. Now, it's possible that the northern light burned out. I don't think it has. But it's possible and what you're seeing is something that appears to be alive, but in reality is dead. And there's a lot of churches like that. They've just burned out. And they have a brilliancy over their past, but the reality of the present is that they are dead. And so Jesus exposes their reputation for who they are. Second, beyond his exposing their reputation, I want you to see Sardis's reformation is essential to him. We learn something now about Sardis's reformation that is absolutely essential. And so Jesus gives them, and by extension us, two principles for genuine reformation in a church. First, reformation comes through remembering. And so notice his counsel as it begins in verse 2. Wake up! Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Jesus loves this church, and so he speaks to the church directly, and it's their only hope for change, and really it's the only hope for any dead church. It's a word from God. It's a pastor of God who preaches the word of God and the spirit of God and begins to stir the hearts of the people. And so Jesus begins with these words, wake up because they were spiritually asleep and therefore not effectively dead. Have you ever been to a dead church? You know, the people just kind of mumble out the hymns and there's no excitement, no spiritual vitality. I mean, they have a sign out front that says welcome, but in small print it really says do not disturb. And we're really not happy that you're here this morning. Listen, if you're a guest, we're really glad you're here this morning. Wake up! And then he gives five commands to this church. Now, it's interesting, this Greek word, wake up, has kind of a a dual nuance to it. And sometimes a translator, when it takes a word out of Greek and puts it into the receptor language, if they're doing a word-for-word correspondence, they just pick one word. And so here in the New American Standard, it says, wake up. But the word that is used here actually also has the idea of not just wake up, but open your eyes. And so other English translations render the second nuance, like the New King James says, be watchful, be watchful. So the first command is to wake up. Great God, oh, it's literally a word, a compound word that means to chase sleep, to chase sleep. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, listen, chase away the sleep before you do anything else. Wake up, be watchful, wake up and strengthen the things that remain. So the first command tells us that while they appear to have flatlined, they can still be revived. There's enough hope here for an appeal to wake up to strengthen the things that remain. This church is not totally dead. There's still a spark of life here. And again, any good physician will go after it. Look at verse 2 again. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed... 
and the sight of my God in referencing the Father. See that word completed? It's the word plerao. You know that word. I've quoted it to you before. Do not be drunk with wine, but be plerao, filled with the Spirit. It's the same identical word, just a different form. And so it's translated completed. It carries the idea of mature or full. And so Jesus is saying, listen, this church is doing a lot of things, but they're not full works in the sight of my Father. Maybe they were praying, but their prayers were an empty shell. They weren't getting any higher than the ceiling. They're half-hearted, not really believing prayers, coming, pleading the promises of God. Maybe they were worshiping, but they weren't worshiping in spirit and in truth. Maybe uh, they sang and it might have even sounded good, but it wasn't pleasing to the ears of the Lord because it didn't come from a spirit-filled heart. Maybe they were giving, but they were robbing God. It wasn't a full gift. And so Jesus, in essence, is saying, you're just entertaining one another. The works that you are doing are not complete. They're not full in the eyes of my Father. So you need to wake up. Verse 3, he asked them to remember. Notice, so remember what you have received and heard and keep it. Literally, keep on remembering. In other words, do not forget what you have received. Do not forget the grace that saved you and wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Do not forget the forgiveness that lifted that burden of guilt and sin. Don't forget the gifts that He gave you to serve His people. Don't forget the strength that you need to sustain you and to empower you to live a godly life. Do not forget. Remember what you've received and keep That implies stewardship. Listen, someday by death or by rapture, everyone in the sound of my voice is going to meet the living God. And the first thing that happens to the church is we give an account to our stewardship before the marriage supper of the Lamb. Don't just remember, do it. Don't ever stop obeying the truth. Just keep going with the truth. And a good memory, not just of our past, in terms of the achievements we've accomplished. Paul says, I forget what lies behind and I press on to what lies ahead. But sometimes a good memory of what God has delivered us from has an incredible impact on our life. That's why the Lord Jesus gave us His supper that we will celebrate this Wednesday night. We are to remember Him. You have no idea how many times I will go into my prayer closet on Sunday morning And say, Lord Jesus, the ministry that you've given me is a miracle. That you would ever count me worthy to serve you is amazing to me. Thank you that you delivered me from my sin and you brought me into a ministry. We are to remember, and I hope you haven't taken the grace of Jesus for granted the forgiveness you first knew, the debt of sin that he lifted from your heart. I mean, what was the prodigal son? What was what brought about the change in his life? He remembered what it was like back in the father's house as he ate pods there in the pig pen. That's always the first step to getting back. The church that is slipping into a coma needs to remember 
And they need to remember why their past really mattered. But there's a second thing. Reformation comes not only through remembering, but also through repenting, through repenting. Notice now, if you will, verse 3. So remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. The second word, the second command is repent. You know the word, it literally means to change your mind. It has little to do with feeling as much as it has to do with the will. Now, feelings may be involved. There's a godly sorrow, Paul writes, that leads to repentance, but ultimately means a change of the will. And so the fact that Jesus can command this church to repent tells me a lot. It tells me there's hope. It tells me that if you are here today and your heart is dead, seemingly, you've spiritually flatlined, there's still hope for you. You can repent. Now, remember, the seven churches that he addresses, I've noted for you already, you could take all the members of Community Bible Church and each of us might fit into one church more than another. I guarantee all seven churches are represented here this morning in these two services. And ideally, we will represent one of the better churches, two that are really worthy of representing. But if you are here this morning, remember, he who has an ear, I hope everybody has an earlobe this morning, he who has an ear, that means not just corporately, but you individually, we need to hear And if we're dead, truly dead, if we've lost our passion and zeal and vigor for Christ, we can repent. This is really a a great word of admonition. And some of us need to say, Lord, my affections have changed. You used to be at the center of everything I did. I spoke with you. I walked with you. I talked with you. You were everything to me. And now things have overtaken my life. You know, we have people who cannot come here for two hours and turn off their cell phone. See, I see it from this perspective. I see it from here. I see people checking their phone and looking at their email. And they can't for two hours just close out some things. In the last service, someone's cell phone went off. Uh, I don't know if you saw it. My son sent me this video of this pastor where this cell phone went off in church and he was speaking on love, love one another. And he walks up to the lady and he takes the cell phone and he slams it on the ground. Then he goes back to the pulpit. Therefore, God says, love one another. I thought, <laughs> this can't, you can go online, you can watch it. I called the church for the fun of it. And I spoke to the church secretary. She said, actually, that was fixed. But we've had more people call and scream and yell at us. But that was fixed. And he used not a real cell phone, but Legos and so forth. It, it, it was interesting. Anyway, I'm getting off here. On a, but, but some of us need to say, Lord, my heart's become cold. It's become indifferent. I, I, I serve you. I may be at the station every Sunday, but it's not a full service like it should be. And so when that happens, we lose our ability. And so the church in Sardis had become like old carnal Lot. You remember Lot? Lot was a saved man. You read the Genesis account and sometimes you think he was saved. We know he was saved because God gives us divine commentary on Lot's life. Peter tells us that Lot was a righteous man, a dikaios man, a declared righteous man. In fact, he displays aspects of faith. When, when God calls Abraham to go to the place he's going to show him, 
Lot chose to follow. Where are we going, Abraham? God hasn't told us. He told us just to go. You coming? I'm coming, Uncle Abraham. I'm going. And he walked over 1,100 miles with his uncle. And of course, he, he goes in faith and he comes to that city called Sodom. And initially, he chooses to live near Sodom. But before long, the Bible says he, he set his tent towards Sodom. And when you come to the end of Lot's life, he's a leader in the gates of Sodom. And God, of course, brings judgment on the city. Sometimes God does something only once to say forever how he feels about a particular sin. And if you wonder how God feels about the sin of sodomy, just read Genesis 19. So the angels of God come, and listen to this verse. They say to Lot, escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains lest you be swept away. But old carnal Lot doesn't have a deep respect for spiritual authority. And those these are God's messengers, we're told in Genesis 19.18. But Lot said to them, to the angels, Oh, oh, no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life, but I cannot escape to the mountains, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. And so Lot begins to doubt God's direction through the angels, through the plan of escape. And God is so gracious and long-suffering, he puts up with all this garbage. But of course, Lot goes to warn his family. And Lot tries to warn his sons-in-law of the disaster that is about to happen. Listen to this verse. And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Lot is pleading, get up, God's going to bring destruction. Get up, God's going to ruin the place. And they started laughing. They thought he was joking. Why? Because Lot had lost his passion and his vigor for the Lord. And he lost, therefore, his spiritual authority to lead his own family. And there are men here, heads of home, single moms, where you've allowed the internet and certain television shows and certain kinds of music that you listen to to just kind of ooze into your life and to take over, and you have no real spiritual authority. And when there comes a time in your life when you try to exercise it before your children, they really won't listen. And so here's the Lord Jesus, because this is what the church at Sardis is like. They have no real influence. It's like a satanic Novocaine had just come over the church and virtually flatlined them. He says, therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come. Now, the picture of the Lord's coming as a thief carries the idea of imminency and of judgment, both in relation to the second coming of Christ and to the rapture of the church. But this is not a reference to the return of Jesus from heaven. Remember, this is a proverbial statement. This is a warning to these people who are saved that he will come like a thief unexpectedly and he will deal with them on a level of discipline that they may not like. We've already seen that in some of these seven letters. Remember, Jesus warned the church in Ephesus who had left their first love to remember. And if they did not remember and repent, he would remove their lampstand, their testimony as a church. 
Likewise, Jesus warned the church at Pergamum or Pergamos of war that he would make with the sword that would come from his mouth, that he would come and discipline them according to the dictates of his word. And even here in Sardis, he's uttering them a warning, a a warning that they can appreciate because on six occasions in their history, the armies came like a thief in the night when they thought they were secure, and suddenly Jesus will come, and he will deal with them accordingly if they do not repent. Listen, when they were newly saved, they were like a burning, blazing log that had influence and warmth and power and light. But now they were dead. Strengthen the things that remain. Rekindle these sparks. There's still some life there. Oh, they were still holding the services, handing out the bulletins, shaking hands, serving in the nursery, singing the hymns. But unless they got right, Jesus was going to come like a thief. By the way, the book of Revelation, of course, is the last book in the Bible to be written. So we don't know from the Bible itself whether or not they responded. However, we do know from church history that a godly man by the name of Pastor Melito, who was actually pastoring this church 100 years later, he left us a document that was a defense for Christianity, an apology for Christianity that he wrote to the emperor of Rome. Pastor Melito, by the way, parenthetically, also wrote about the millennial reign of Messiah, that Jesus would literally rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years, which tells me that he literally believed what God said in this book. And so this church apparently responded. Third, he concludes with Sardis's remnant of being encouraged. Now, there's two classes of people in this church. There's the dead and the dying, and he's telling them to remember and to repent. But there's a second group whom we might call the dedicated. And so he now encourages the dedicated on two levels. First, they're encouraged for their virtuous life. Even in this church, there was a faithful few. There was the master's minority. There were some people who, was, who were walking with the Lord. And you know they had to be grieved over the state of the church overall because they were just few in number. We read in verse 4, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. So there's a remnant here in the church who are not stained, not soiled by the world. And when people walk carelessly on a street, they can pick up the mud and the dirt of the street. And Christians who are careless in living in this world can become stained by this world. Some of your translations say soiled. The NAS says stained. Another says defiled. You could render it in a lot of different ways. But the fact that their garments were soiled gives us a clue to the problem here. Behind all their religious activity, behind their singing, behind their serving, behind their tithing, behind their worship, there was the defilement of sin. And the heart of the problem is always a problem of the heart. It always, virtually, every time can be traced back to sin. And it may be some small area of compromise, but it doesn't take much to grieve the Holy Spirit and to short-circuit His power in the human life. And so notice what He says, the promise given to them if they will walk Um, they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. This is an affirmation. They're going to walk with him in white. Why? Because they are worthy. Now understand, the term white garments is used in two ways 
in the book of Revelation. It's used in reference to our justification, and it's also used in reference to our sanctification. Put out in the margin next to verse 5, where it's used in reference to justification, Revelation 7.14. Let me read that to you first. There's a great multitude. We call them tribulation saints. They are saved after the church is raptured. They refuse to bow down and worship the Antichrist. And because of that, they are executed. Their heads are cut off. And we read in Revelation 7, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That speaks of justification. That speaks of someone believing on the Lord Jesus that they might be saved. They are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and therefore they are in heaven. And by the way, if you don't have a white robe, if you've never received the righteousness of Christ, if you're relying on your righteousness to get you to heaven, you won't get to heaven. But put next to verse 4, if you would, Revelation 19 and verse 8. There it's used in reference to our sanctification. Listen clearly. It was given to her to clothe herself, the bride, in fine linen, bright and clean. What is this fine linen? For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. This kind of bright and clean robe speaks of our sanctification people who have lived consistently and therefore the overall life they have is considered unstained by the world. And that's what Jesus is referring to in verse 4. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. You're not worthy of salvation. You cannot earn salvation. Salvation is the gift of God, but someday one of the first things God does when you get to heaven is I mentioned already, he will evaluate your stewardship. And if you are a good steward, he will bless you. He will reward you with these bright and clean garments. The half-brother of Jesus said it this way in James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is, among other things, to keep oneself unstained by the world. Look, I'm notorious for getting stains on my clothes. It drives my wife crazy. You know, she'll work so hard, she'll put that OxyClean on there. She'll take it off right now, get the OxyClean on, and she'll throw it in the washer. And, and sometimes I come home, and she said, well, I guess you can cut the grass in that shirt. That stain's never going to come out. A stain affects our appearance and our usability. And that's true in the spiritual realm. When you become stained by the world, it doesn't mean that you don't have exposure to the world. If being stained by the world means being with the world, then Jesus would have been stained all over because he was a friend of sinners. Look, a Christian can visit a restaurant and people can be getting drunk. I was in a restaurant recently and over at the bar, there were some people getting loaded. It was obvious. They were just laughing and giggling. I thought they were wasted, Audrey. But there are other people in the restaurant, same restaurant, by the choices they made, who are not drunk. And so it goes back to your motive, what drives your choices. Look, the the motive behind Christians who drink, there's a reason we drop Moody, and I'm disgusted with their decision to be able to attract new professors. They allow them now to drink and smoke in moderation and gamble. Hmm, Okay. Even my own seminary, Moody's policy for 100 years, Dallas Seminary's policy since 1928, and they dropped the whole drinking thing because now all the 
old guard, the great theologians, men like Dr. John Walvert and Dr. Norman Geiser and Dwight Pentecost, and you know, all these old guard, they've died out. Howard Hendricks, and they all taught absence. They got there different ways. But they taught that's what the script. Now they say, well, we were wrong for all these years. Oh, really? No, you're just compromising. You see, a a person who goes into the restaurant and has to have his beer, he's basically saying that the Lord Jesus does not meet the deepest, most fundamental needs of my heart to be satisfied. And so I have to drink this beer instead of this lemonade. Hmm? Your motives drive your choices. And many choices that people make begin to stain them by the world. A few people, however, in Sardis, had not soiled their garments. They had made them white by keeping them unstained through the choices they made. Years ago, I read about ermines. I meant to bring a picture of an ermine for you this morning when it was still uh, politically correct for women to wear fur coats. One of the most expensive coats was a white fur ermine coat. Little animal. And this animal was hunted... And the way they hunted them is the, they would go to the, find the small apertures of the ermine and they would coat the entrance to the ermine's den with, with mud. And then they'd send the dogs out and the dogs would chase the ermines and the ermines would run for cover. And when they came to their den that was coated with mud because they refused to defile their fur coat, they would fight the dog until their death. Listen, my friends, we need some, we need some Christians who are like the ermine who are faithful unto death, who are willing to be counter-cultural for the cause of Jesus Christ, who are willing to make a difference by their virtuous life. So they're encouraged by their virtuous life, but they are also encouraged with their coming reward. We read now in verse 5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Now, I've told you before, there are a minority of Christians in the world today who teach you can lose your salvation. And this is one of 10 verses in the New Testament that they typically draw their argument from. But remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And if we have over 150 verses in the New Testament that affirm our eternal security, verses that are crystal clear, not to mention it's an oxymoron to say you have present tense eternal life and you can lose something that's eternal, but lay that aside. If you have over 150 clear verses, you interpret what to you might be unclear in light of what is very clear. And so some argue that Jesus is threatening to take away their salvation, to erase their names from the book of life, therefore losing their salvation. Others who know their Bible better, who recognize God in other places, teaches eternal security, and God can't contradict himself, say, well, the book starts with everybody's name written in the book of life. And at the end of time, when, or at the end of your time when you die, if you don't receive Jesus, then your name is erased from the book of life. And then they would say, because it's obvious at the end of the revelation, that everyone's name in the book of life is saved. And the book of life, as we'll see, is the same as the Lamb's book of life in, in the book of Revelation. They would say that, uh, therefore, he is speaking to those who never receive the Lord. Uh, it's interesting, and I can appreciate that argument, because at least they're trying to be consistent with the rest of Scripture, but I think it's a little bit contrived. Um, 
he who overcomes will fuss be clothed in white garments, and I will ume, not, it's a double negative for emphasis, I will not erase his name from the book of life. By the way, what you find here in verses 4 and 5 is the typical pattern you see throughout Scripture, where on the one hand, like in uh, Matthew 18, the apostles come, and Jesus, how many times should we forgive our brother? Up to seven times? No, up to 70 times seven. Have a heart of forgiveness. And so Christians who are saved, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, are taught in the Lord's prayer to pray, you know, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Paul says, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? Just like God in Christ forgave you. So we're commanded to forgive each other. Presupposition, it's possible for a Christian to withhold forgiveness to hold a debt against someone. On the other hand, Jesus goes right after that statement and he tells a parable and he, in the same breath, teaches that forgiveness is a sign of conversion. So on the one hand, we're commanded to do it in our sanctification. On the other hand, it's a sign of conversion. And so God gives these balancing truths. We could look at a dozen of them all the way through Scripture. So on the one hand, these people have robes of white by the deeds that they did. They were worthy of these robes by choices and decisions they make. Some people would then reason, hmm, okay, I may not have one of these special robes when I get to heaven, but I'm going to heaven. You hear these people all the time. I may not have some big mansion in glory, but I'll have a little log cabin in the corner. I mean, it's just pure ignorance to even think in those terms in reference to what the Father's house is. Lay that aside. There's some who think, well, I may not have that robe, but I'll be there. And so Jesus gives the balancing truth between sanctification and justification. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. Ume, I will not erase his book, his name from the book of life. By the way, this is the exact same construction in John chapter 10, where Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give. We don't earn. I give them eternal life. And they will ume, double negative for emphasis. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one shall snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You don't hold on to God. God holds them to you by His amazing, incredible grace. But in both places, it's a double negative for emphasis. The believer never needs to fear that somehow he might just forfeit his salvation, not if they have genuinely been saved. In fact, this particular verse is an affirmation not of losing salvation, but of how secure it is. He's saying, I will not erase your name, double negative, from the book of life. Let's read the entire verse. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father who is in heaven. Now, the Lord Jesus describes these people, notice, as overcomers and clothed in white garments. The definition of an overcomer is one who overcomes, and it can best be understood by John's definition in 1 John. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Why? Because when you're born again, your life changes. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. And if your life doesn't change and show real fruit, just means you've never been saved. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. 
And so we will see all the way through the revelation that the overcomer describes the genuine, true, real believer, and it demonstrates that they have real faith. Um, we've already seen that in reference to the church there in Smyrna in Revelation 2.10 that they were willing to be faithful even to the point of death. Likewise, Revelation 12, 11, and they overcame him, the devil in the context. How? Because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony and they did not love their life even when faced with death. You're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, Jesus taught, you will persevere. And in the end, because you have real, genuine faith, he will give you a garment of justification and he will not deny your name before his heavenly father because you are the real thing. Now think about that for a moment. One of these days, either by death or by rapture, we are going to heaven. And one of these days, Jesus is going to walk you down those streets to the throne of his Father. And if you know him, he is going to confess your name before his Father. Thank God for these and the church that made the master's minority, these few people, who not only knew him, but they walked with him. They not only had garments of justification, they had garments of sanctification. So he concludes, he who has an ear, let him hear. Not what he says to the church, but what he says to the churches. What he says to Ephesus and Laodicea and Thyatira and Smyrna, and what he says to the people of Community Bible Church. Now, how are we going to apply this? Let me make three applications this morning. I learned from this passage, number one, that it's possible to have appearances of spiritual life without the reality. You can have the appearance of being saved without the reality of being saved. Without, excuse me, without the reality of spiritual life. I'm not talking about being saved, but you can be saved, but not and think you're alive when you're really not. There's a lot of people like that in the church today. Ask yourself this question. If every single person here this morning at Community Bible Church, whatever campus you're on, if every single person were just like you, they gave like you, they served like you, they sang like you, they fasted like you, they prayed like you, they witnessed like you, what would Community Bible Church be like? Some of us used to be passionate for Jesus, but we virtually flatlined. Second, it's possible to perform for God without being transformed by God. It's possible to serve God without really being born again. By the fact that Jesus speaks of he who overcomes implies that there are members in the church of Sardis who are not overcomers, therefore not genuinely saved. Jesus deals with this problem in the Sermon on the Mount in that familiar text. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and your name cast out demons and your name perform many miracles? And if you know the context, he's not talking about people who embrace the isms of the world, but people who embrace Christianity. And he in no way denies the fact that they did do miracles, that they did preach that they did cast out demons, something that's possible for an unbeliever to do and the power of Jesus' name. But in spite of their false preaching, in spite of their false powers, 
though they use the Lord's name very freely, Lord, Lord, in reference to their name, he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Third and finally, it's possible to regain spiritual vitality that has been lost. It's possible to regain the vitality that has been lost. Jesus is teaching us in this letter, even if we are dead, even if today you are guilty of ho-hum Christianity, it doesn't have to stay that way. You can remember and you can repent. And if you're here today and say, my heart is vibrant and it's going to be vibrant until Jesus comes, then be careful. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. Don't forget the admonition of the Apostle Paul, and don't forget Peter's failure. George Whitfield was a great pastor in London, England, and for seven years of his life, he became a full-time evangelist. He was in a Bible study in Oxford with John and Charles Wesley, and he came to America in 1738 and was a part of the First Great Awakening. He went back to England to raise money for an orphanage there in the city of Savannah, Georgia. And when he got back, he was not welcomed in the pulpits. He had become too evangelistic, too passionate for Jesus. And like the Wesleys, he was excluded. So they went where they could preach. They preached in the open air. And he came back to America and he, he preached to crowds of 20 and 30,000 and tens of thousands of people were converted. And through genuine conversion, the seeds were placed that brought down slavery both in England and here in the States. And one young man at the age of 17 who was living a godless, worldly, licentious life was a man by the name of Robert Robinson, Robertson. And Robertson was gloriously saved, and God called him into the ministry, and he became a great pastor. In fact, we sing one of his hymns. Most of the old hymns of the 18th and 19th century weren't written by song artists, but by pastors. You know the hymn, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, calls for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet. Sung by flaming tongues above, praise the mountain, fix upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, my, my, my sign of victory. Hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Unfortunately, he did not heed his own words, and he let his heart get cold, and he fell back into immorality. And on one particular day, by the providence and sovereignty of God, he found himself in the stagecoach with a woman, a woman whose head was buried in a hymnal. And she was sitting across from him. And she said, will you listen to these wonderful words? This is wonderful, the man who wrote this. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Calls for songs of loudest praise. And he sat there with his head hung low. And then she came to this stanza. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I know it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. 
And before she could finish the final stanza, he said, and I quote from his journal, Madame, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy once again. Peter got his life right with the Lord. Robert Robinson got his life right with the Lord. And some of you can today too. But if your heart is cold and indifferent, you've got to own it before you can do something about it. Now, Holy Father, we thank you for the opportunity this Sunday, this Lord's Day, as you've commanded us to gather, to be able to read your word, to feed on it, that you've been here this morning speaking to us. Jesus, you said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And I know, Father, there are some who can't even begin to live for you because they've never been born again. You said, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So help someone in simple faith to say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. But I look to you as my Savior. I thank you that you died instead of me, that you took the judgment for all of my sin, past, present, and future. And as the risen Lord, I trust you to save me. But you must believe the gospel. You must believe that God keeps his word, that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. You must come in faith and in childlike, simple faith, believing God, say, Lord Jesus, save me. Because you have, I will never be ashamed of you. I commit myself to openly, publicly declaring you before men to be baptized as a symbol of my faith and by your mercy to live the rest of my days following you. Would you say that to him? He said, I did that years ago. I know I'm saved. I know my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But I'm like some of the people in Sardis. I claim to be alive. People think I'm alive. But Jesus knows in my heart of hearts that I'm dead. Would you remember? Would you repent? Would you get your heart right with Him today? Father, we love you and we thank you for your persistence, for your long suffering, for your eternal love with which you've loved us. We offer our prayer to you today in Jesus' holy name. Amen.